Hello and welcome to today's episode of Elixir Mix. I am joined as always by our wonderful panel of hosts, including Bruce Tate. Hi, everybody. Hey, Bruce. We've got Josh Adams. Hello. Hi, Josh. Lars Vickman. Yana, Yana. Wait, what was that? Colloquial Swedish. Very nice. Hello, hello. <laughs> hello, hello. Very cool. And Stephen Nunez. Hello. Or hola. Stephen? I guess I have to say hola or something. Yeah, I think you do have to. Que lo que for my Dominicans out there. <laughs> Perfect. And joining us as a guest, we are very lucky to have Adolfo Neto, who is a professor of computer science, and he's also very active in the Elixir community, especially with regards to Elixir education. I am super happy that you could join us today because these are really some of my favorite topics, education and Elixir. If you wouldn't mind, go ahead and introduce yourself. Thank you very much. My, my name is Adolfo. I'm a professor at the, the Federal University of Technology, Paraná, which is here in Curitiba, Brazil, and I teach logic for computer science and also an introduction to functional programming course. And I got interest in Elixir because it was created by a Brazilian. I have to say that because that, that was attracted me to the language at first, but now I, I admire the language and also its community. Roxio calls themselves career rocket fuel for curious coders. They are some of the most experienced Elixir trainers in the business with over five years of Elixir teaching experience. We're in the midst of a pandemic, but don't let that stop you from continuing to learn. Roxio offers remote Elixir and OTP live training courses with no more than six participants. These short two and a half day sessions give you plenty of keyboard time with your coach, Bruce Tate, co-author of the Programming Phoenix and Designing Elixir Systems with OTP. Roxio also has three extensive Elixir self-study courses available. Whether you want to learn Elixir, OTP, or Phoenix Live View, the self-guided trainings give you the videos, projects, and books you need to make your own breakthroughs. Groxio wants to be your Elixir on-ramp. Subscribe or buy a course today at grox.io. So do you actually get to teach Elixir in, in, at your university? Yes, I don't have many students. Last offering, I had four students only because it's an optional course. It's You don't have to take this course to graduate in computer science. Or Actually, we don't have computer science here. It's computer engineering and information systems, but it's, it's an optional. For instance, I, I have an Azure Methods classes too, class two, and it's, it has much more students because it's, it attracts more interest for, for the, it's more interesting for the students to learn what's Scrum than Elixir. But I hope that as the time passes, more of the students are going to get interested in the, the, this class. It's interesting. We've gotten to spend a little bit of time together. For those of you who don't know, I have a mentoring group and Adolfo shows up as, I don't know, something in between a, a mentor and a mentee, which is kind of great for my students. But I have some questions. Do you have any techniques that, that you can throw my way? Or are there any things that we do that you're going to take with you in your teaching approaches? Oh, actually, I think I, I'm learning more with you than the opposite. Because before this introduction to functional programming course, I only taught um, logic for computer science. So it, it was not an introduction to programming. I'm still trying to learn what which is the best approach to teach programming. And uh, what I try to do is teach them the, how to write a program in Elixir, but also the fundamentals, um, papers about the, the actor model and so it's kind of mixed. There is also this academic approach that I think that's what's different from your approach with your mentees. 
it's been fun to actually have smaller classes where we can flip the keyboard. And I think that that, that has been an eye-opener for me. Do you get a chance to actually invite the kids to get up and code ever? I, I know I never had that in my university. Yes, yes. Because I, I'm also a big fan of the coding dojo technique. I have written some papers about it. And whenever I can, I invite my students to do a coding dojo with the whole class. And every five, seven minutes, they first they, they do pair programming. So there is two two persons on using the, the computer and one of them is the, the driver and the other is the, how do you say? I, I don't remember the, the name, but the one that's observing and saying, no, uh, navigator. Do do yeah. Yes, navigator. And after some time, the navigator becomes a driver. The drives go back to the to his seat and another student takes the place of the navigator. You have to, to be always paying attention to what's happening to, to be able to write some code in front of the class. That's something that I really like. I had a master's student who wrote, actually, no, two master's students. They wrote their thesis on coding dojo. So I tried to practice this with my students. It's interesting that you mentioned giving your students, um, I think you mentioned some papers on like the actor model to read. And that made me realize that when I was learning Elixir, I didn't really know what that was or, or even have an opportunity to think too much about it until maybe almost like a year into, you know, writing Elixir professionally. And I have an OO background, like I learned Ruby first, I was a Rails developer. And so a lot of my journey into Elixir was characterized by like writing a lot of really messy sort of OO inflected Elixir code. And so one of the things I'm always curious about is, you know, what is it like to teach and learn something functional first, as opposed to learning OO and then like trying to sort of fight your way into a functional way of thinking? I don't know if you've taught OO as well as functional or, you know, how you think about these different, totally different frameworks and mental models. Yes. The, the problem is that my students, when they come to, to this optional course, they already know how to program. So I don't know how it is to teach functional programming first, because they, they already know the, the problem that they have is in that I, I tweeted a few days ago was that uh, they they do what you said. They they know how to do object-oriented programming. And they try to do something like that with Elixir, and they, they have it's really difficult for them. For the few students that I had, try to write some more idiomatic codes, some code that looks like Elixir that makes use of pattern matching and small functions and lots of things that you can do in Elixir, you can do in functional programming language, and it makes the code more readable, but you can't do in OO. So at first, I'm not a professional programmer, so I program whenever I can, but I, I did my PhD thesis using Java. So I can say that I could write some reasonably good uh, Java code. And when I started Elixir, no, and before Elixir, I started Clojure, and it was difficult to say, no, how do I do that? How do I do a for loop here? <laughs> there is no for loop. So I had to try to, to do things differently. So it's a, a problem that I still don't have, but I want to have. One of my projects, I have many projects, not all of them I put them in practice, but one of them was to create a programming course or even write a book for complete beginners, people that can't program in any language and say, no, now let's learn 
elixir. So without the, telling them that it's elixir, only you know, that's because there there are many introductory books about elixir that. For, for example, my friend Ulysses Almeida, he wrote a great book about learning functional programming and with Elixir, but he kind of expects that people already know how to program with some other language. I believe Dave Thomas' book also expects an even more Sasha Yurik book. So there's no program, no programming book for, that teaches functional programming with Elixir for complete beginners, as far yes, as I know. Yeah, such such books do exist for the Haskell language, <laughs> which is kind of a, a a big step, right? Because you're you're not just grappling with the the paradigm of you know what's an object and things, but you're also working into a completely different kind of type theory. And these these concepts are just pretty stunning to me. So another professor that that I really like is is a man named John Hughes, one of the creators of Haskell. And he came to to Chattanooga to to attend our conference, and and I was fortunate to spend another couple of days with him. But he regularly taught students without any kind of mental corruption, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and these were computer science students. So, what what's interesting to me is the students that I get that that are starting from scratch are normally professionals that have tried to make a go in something else, right? So they they have the benefit of not having some of the baggage um, of a different programming paradigm that we have to deconstruct. But they also don't have the experience with the tools that they need for basic fluency, how to navigate the command line, how to use source control, how to do things like that. And and that's, that is a tremendous obstacle. So you find the same thing teaching at university. You mean they, they this don't book, have the, the, the basically a fluency with with the basic tools, you know, source control, editors, um, navigation of the command line, things like that. Yes, the first years students here at the, the university, some of them don't have any fluency, so they learn C. The, the teachers that teach them in the first semester, they teach them C, so they learn the basics in the first semesters. When they arrive in my, cl- my class, they already know how to do that. But I see what I mean. And there there are some online IDEs like Ripple, I don't know, it's Ripple.it and also Wendbox, where you don't have to learn everything that create a file and all those things to, to be able to write some basic programs in Elixir. Yeah, on the subject of just teaching absolute beginners, uh, one of the best books I ever found for this was Chris Pine's Learn to Program, uh, which is in Ruby. Uh, I have a friend who was sort of mildly technically competent. He learned to program Ruby using that book. He's the CTO now of a startup. Really fun to watch that that actually can work. That's not a testimonial for Chris Pine's book. I really don't know what is. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about how to teach absolute beginners. And that's something that when Stephen and I were teaching together at the Flatiron School, that's exactly what we did. And what we were teaching was Ruby. And I think at least at the time when I was a student there, which I was before being a teacher there, 
Chris Pine's book was, I don't know if it was required, but it was sort of recommended pre-reading of starting the course. And I think one of the things that I loved about teaching Ruby to absolute beginners, and one of the reasons why the school kind of touted it as such a great language for beginners is because it it's easy to see how it models the real world, right? We, there's an early assignment, I think, where we have students build out like a pet store or something, right? And you have a dog and the characteristics of a dog, and then you instantiate dog objects and, you know, take them, I don't know, to the vet or something like that. And and for a while, I was really just totally sold on OO models the real world. Like that is the mental model for writing code that models the world. But now that I'm working in, with Elixir and, and thinking about things more functionally, I'm kind of thinking like, does it? Isn't it that message passing models the world? And that's certainly what Joe Armstrong, you know, would argue. And isn't it that the actor model really models the world? So it still feels like these things are at odds. Like, can they both be accurate representations of the way that? you know, people and objects move through the world? Well, I, I think that, uh, as I said, I came from a large-scale computer science background, and there is one thing that is real in large, even before in program, is that there are many, many models of the world. There is, for instance, logic, there is the classical propositional logic that we use mostly on programming. It's only one logic. There is multi-valued logic, there is relevant logic, intuitionistic logic, there is many logic. I believe that depending on the problem, one model is going to be the best for other problems. There are two possible models and you can choose. So I don't think that's a problem. Maybe this book that teaches an absolute beginner how to program in Ruby is good for a person and this other book that teaches how to program in Haskell is good for a mathematically inclined person. And so there, there I think that the great thing about all these programming languages is that there are many options. So I know people love closure. I know people hate closure because there is so many parentheses. And closure is even has less parentheses than Lisp. There's everything that is is made with parentheses, so I don't think it's a problem. But the thing here is that we have to provide options, and the the students, the users, the the persons, the people that want to learn programming, they they choose what's best for them. I think that we're kind of entering a golden age of programming in some ways because um, we've come out of a of a place when there was one true way, right? There was the the Java way, and in the darkness, find them. <laughs> right. So we we're starting to to get to the point where it's not just useful, but almost expected to have more than one tool in your tool bag. And um, so for that reason, I think that probably the most important thing that we can learn is the skill of learning. Right. And so I, that's that's something that I've always really respected about you and in, in your work. And especially this dojo approach where, where you teach people to roll up their sleeves and, and get their hands dirty first, really early in the process. Yes. And what's great about Coding Dojo, it was created by two French guys. I believe that it was created in France. I can't remember their, the names of the Laurent Bossavi, and I don't remember the name of the other guy. But um, one of the goals, when I learned the, the coding dojo from one of my students. It says one of the goals. I know you you do during one, two, three hours. You solve a problem, a code kata. 
And this concept of code kata was created by the great Dave Thomas, which you know well. And the, his idea was it was a small problem that we, you'd solve several times with different techniques in different languages. And the sowing there, it's it's the, the, the seed for the, this idea that you for you to, to be a good programmer, you can't be just, I oh, know, I'm going to become perfect with Java and forget all about the other language. No, you can learn Prolog, you can learn Lisp, you can learn, of course, you have to decide that something that was happening at the Elixir World Telegram group today is that sometimes you have to choose. You cannot, uh, I'm going to learn a bit of Elm, a bit of Elixir, a bit of Erlang, a bit of Java, and end up being competent in nothing. You have to choose. I'm going to be good in Elixir. And I'm going to study the other language so that I, I'll be a better Elixir developer, a better developer in general. And maybe in the future, again, oh, no, now I, I, I don't have a, a job with Elixir, but I have a Java job, so I can do Java too. And this I is, this is a, 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 sorry, this is a real case. Uh, a friend of mine, she had an Elixir job, and then she went to Sweden to to be a, an Erlang developer, and then she found a Java job. So, <laughs> yeah, in my experience, the whole idea of being a generalist sort of turns out to be a pretty good specialty. Um, just having multiple things to lean on and having a wide knowledge of technology, servers, the for example, the field of web development is by its very nature extremely wide. There's a ton of things you should know to be really knowledgeable about the web, uh, both back-end, front-end, and web standards, and APIs. There are so, so many things. And every domain in programming is basically like that, in that it's, there's a lot of depth and there's a lot of width. And of course, you can focus down on a language to become an absolute expert in wielding the minute details of Java or Elixir or Python or C. But you can also pick up a few different languages or pick up a wide skill set where, okay, you need a SQL database up and running, or now we need to set up some additional servers, or we need to write something in this language because we're using a project written in an entirely different language. Is there anyone that can actually read the code and work with it? Okay, yeah. If you know a few languages, picking up a new one, for example, is is usually fairly straightforward, except when you run into like the paradigm shift of OO functional programming, for example. But I think having that generalist approach tends to... often heard the advice to specialize. You need to be good at a specific thing. And I think I think people mistake what that should be and what that needs to be. I think you can be very experienced. You can be an expert. That doesn't mean that you know every detail of the language. It can, but then you're a language doctor or a language specialist. That's usually not the most useful value add for, for a particular endeavor, in my experience. And I mean, it strikes me, Adolfo, that you are essentially um, starting to move people in this direction, right? With your functional programming course and with the way that the world is moving or needs to move, <laughs> maybe isn't moving there fast enough. Um, but it strikes me that that you've you've at some point you've made a decision to take people in this direction. When when was that? When did you start to um, 
be more of uh, kind of open up the blinders a little bit. Um, in the United States, there are a whole lot of schools that are invested in teaching Java and teaching Microsoft because that's where the certifications are. And they've made investments in those places and they just can't break away. I have a lot of freedom here in the public university where the government owns the university and it's free for the students so I can offer the, the course. I have some freedom to offer some course and I, I decided to start this functional programming course. And functional programming is getting more well-known with Brazilian software developers because there is a big company called Newbank, which it's a kind of a banking, a digital banking company. They have a credit card and they bought Platform Attack, which is the company where Joseph Alin, actually Joseph Alin not only worked, worked at that, but he was one of the owners of the company. And after that, the, the same company bought Cognitect, which is was the company, is it still is the company behind Clojure. So there was some kind of publicity for functional programming language here in Brazil because of these two companies that were bought. So I hope that in the near future, I will have more students for my functional programming class. I, I try to, to offer them this because they, what, what they learn as mandatory courses is C, C++, and Java. They, that's what they have to learn, but if they want, they can learn Elixir too. I think uh, related to this kind of on the topic of, of teaching and producing generalists, sort of what you're saying, like, okay, well, students are, if not required, then they're kind of put into these boxes to learn these three languages. And if they want to, they can come over here and learn this as well. Really relates to something you said earlier, which is that you're not teaching students Elixir, although, you know, hopefully you are, you're teaching them how to learn. And I've always found that one of the best ways to do that is to like make your students strategically uncomfortable, like kind of let, let them suffer a little. And I'm going to actually put Steven in, in the hot seat a little bit because I think that this is, if that's my teaching philosophy, I think I probably stole that from you. A little bit. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, there's, there's sort of the thinking about learning that you learn through uncomfort the most. So the, the closer you can safely push people into being uncomfortable, the, the faster they'll sort of learn. I think everything... It's sort of theoretical until you've gotten to the point where you're like, oh, I have a deadline and I have to build this project and I'm going to present in front of my entire class in two days. Oh my God, this is the end of the world if I do this wrong. But yeah, I think suffering is important. Even if I sound a little, little mean when I say it, I think that suffering and struggle is where you get the best learning and where it sticks. It's funny. There's a there's a man named Evan Miller, which we should definitely have on this this. Um this podcast at some point. He is behind the Erlang Project Chicago Boss. And so Adolfo, we were doing this mental group that you're a part of, you know, long before you and I met, we were doing it in Chattanooga and everyone would show up, right? Pre-pandemic. But Evan would look up my shoulder when I was teaching somebody and someone would start to go off in the wrong direction. And I'd kind of give them a general nudge, you know, kind of nudge the rudder every now and then. And, you know, I'd turn around and Evan would be shaking his head, right? And then, you know, so I would try to explain harder and he would be shaking his head. And then, so at this, this one time I turned around, I said, what, Evan, what? <laughs> you know, and everybody just turned around. I, and I'm, I'm, you know, usually pretty unflappable, right? But I was not that day. And he said, Bruce, it's all about the struggle. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and so, you know, that's that's probably my great weakness in a classroom setting is building in enough struggle, right? So I, I teach a lot of technique. So what I should do is allow the mistakes to happen in the right context and be kind of a guide, be a guardrail so that when the struggles happen, you know, can leave opportunity to bring people back on course and then and then cast them into the wind again. But yeah, you saw that firsthand. Yes, yes. And it's important because it's related to that model that you used, the Dreyfus model. And of course, if someone is a beginner, you, he or she needs more direct instruction. But if, if someone that has a, a little bit more of experience than you, ah, okay, try it. Go to the internet and try to find what's the solution. Because one thing that I also think that's important nowadays that wasn't important when that important when when I started to learn programming. Because when I started learning programming a long time ago, I started with basic. There was no internet, so all I had was a book and the computer. But now we have lots of places where you can go. If you want to learn Elixir, you can go to Elixir School, and there is also the Elixir Forum, Elixir on Slack, Elixir on Discord, and I have just created the Elixir World on, on Telegram, and also Twitter. Uh, there's a lot of people tweeting about Elixir, and so um, I think nowadays, if you want to learn a language, you have also to learn how to navigate all these opportunities to learn from others in the community. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker, I don't want to deal with Kubernetes, I don't want to deal with setting up servers, I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on, so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from The Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of The Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. I, I wanted to plus one Elixir World on Telegram. Uh, I'm a big fan of Telegram and I, I joined it once I realized it existed and uh, immediately scrolled up and saw interesting conversation. Thanks. I just started uh, my, my idea with Elixir World was exactly that I'm part of the Elixir Brazil Telegram and there's, there are many interesting conversations there. In Portuguese, of course, because it's our language, but there was no, I said that there's no group like that in English. So ah, I'm going to create one for for English speaking. Of course, not English speaking. It's people from all over the world. I 
once I listed, uh, there are people from many countries and so don't expect perfect English there, but people that can understand and write basic English. That's so important too, Adolfo, um, that, that we don't all look alike or sound alike. Um, I think that one of the things you get is um, different problem-solving perspectives. And when when we have people who have come from different backgrounds and um, different skills and and um, you, you get different language approaches and you, you have Justin's, you know, make everything, you know, I will steamroll any obstacle, you know, I'll you know, rewrite the, the Linux kernel for nerves. And then you have Bruce Williams and, and his approach and his kind of Zen-like approach to making things beautiful and making them flow and making them exactly in the right abstractions. And you know, then you get absent, but that's what makes community special. And I'm really glad that you don't see perfect English there, right? That you see, that you see such a variety—not just words, but of thought structures and paradigms and things like that. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of our responsibilities as as teachers and as educators. I think is not just to give people materials so that they can learn how to do a thing, but it's how to create conditions around them in which they can learn. And part of that are, are the conditions of this community, of the Elixir community, of the Erlang community, of the functional programming community. And that's why I think in particular, you know, a lot of the work that you've done at Olfo to create these resources and these channels and these spaces where people can come together and learn together, I think is really incredible. And I would love to hear from you. What more do you want to see in the Elixir community? Like what resource do you wish existed that doesn't? Maybe it's that Elixir for Absolute Beginners book. You know, what kind of involvement or participation do you want to see from people in the groups that you've created or or in other groups? You know, what can we all be doing to keep this community growing so that we can keep educating and keep bringing in newcomers? Wow, that's a, a good question. Maybe I really like exorcism. And that's uh, a resource that I think it's it's not, there's no need to create another exorcism, but maybe people in the community that want to help others, they should go there and become a mentor. And the others that want to learn should go there and become mentees and try to learn using research like that. And I mean, let me just say what I see in the Brazilian community. There's a lot, a lot, it's a lot, no. There's some like coding with Elixir, one on Twitch, some on YouTube. I would like to see this more in English. Maybe I don't see it because it has not arrived to me, but it's there. So I, if you know someone doing that, please tweet me and then I will, I will try to include that. And I have a, a small GitHub project where I'm compiling. Maybe after some time, I will give this information to do to the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation because that's one of the things that let me introduce this subject. We, we I'm part of the Education Working Group of the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation, and we we are doing lots of things to try to make not not on Elixir but also Erlang and the, the other being languages to make them more popular to allow more people that want to learn that these languages to learn them. So for instance, we, we have had uh, Elixir Conf U virtual a few months ago, and there is a professor and she said, oh, my, my students want to take part in the training. So the foundation uh, supported the, the students. And we have a lot of 
initiatives going on. We had, before the pandemic, we, we've had some meetings where we, we discussed, for instance, one of the initiatives, initiatives was to try to find professors in many universities that are teaching either Erlang or Elixir or other BIM language, and to try to connect these professionals that use Elixir in production with these professors that teach Elixir or Erlang so that these professionals can give talks to the students. And I believe there is also a need, as I said, for a, a good introductory book. But I know that's, that's because I particularly love books. Maybe most of the people nowadays don't love books as much as I do. So there's maybe no economic reason for uh, an introductory book. But I love books. I would like to see a, a real introductory book on Elixir. And I think that's it. Elixir should be a good language to break into functional programming. And I say that because I think that Elixir can stand on its own when you just get into the core. You just the, the kind of the pure functions, the exorcism size and shaped projects. And you can do that without absorbing a whole lot of functional algebra in, in terms of the um, of the type structures, but you still have the full power of functional programming that you can bring to bear. So it should be, and, and the other thing that I think is critical is that with the pipe, you have this idea of glue between concepts. And that's the hard thing about teaching someone that's new or teaching someone from an object-oriented system where we say, okay, objects, don't do that. Inheritance, don't do that. So there's a lot of things that we say not to do. But if, unless you replace that glue, it's difficult to, to get traction with the new programmer. But if you have this framework of hey, there's a module that's, that collects things and then that module surrounds this central type and then you can kind of chain things together with simple transformations. I think it, sh it should be, I think you're definitely onto something that learning programming 101 in Elixir is definitely something that you could do. I would like to, to say something else about this learning, the, the community. One thing that I noticed that it's, really attracted me to the language and the larger community, the, the, the Bean community, because it's not only Elixir, but also Erlang. It's the, it's the, the podcasts. It, this podcast already has more than 100 episodes and there are other podcasts. And there is this great podcast that it seems has already finished, but it has a, a lot of great interviews there that you can, if you want to listen to interviews with Joe Armstrong from the past that it's there on Elixir Fountain. So I think that the, this community, of course, I, I before Elixir, I was following the Closure community, which seems to be smaller. It has less resources for beginners. Maybe today it has the same, but at the time it had more, less resources for beginners. So I think the, the idea of a podcast, I love podcasts because I, I can learn unexpected things. Uh, it's that, that word that people use, it's serendipity, right? So you're not expecting to learn something. And I mean, of course, the, the learning that happens in a podcast is a much it's at a, a much higher level than the learning that you learn when you, for instance, if you go to 
Tetris series in your channel, Bruce, and the, the Grokto channel. Of course, you're going to learn some more technical things, technical details about how to write an, a live view app. But it's it's also, you can learn a lot of things and listening to people from the community. And that's a great resource too. And I'm planning to do some research about this the podcasts and how they are perceived by the community. I hope that when this episode goes on air, I will have a survey that to survey the community about how, because I know there are some people that don't like podcasts. They won't listen to podcasts, but I know also that there is many people that listen to podcasts, but what do they get from the podcast? What, what do they expect from the podcasts? What, do they value more a person because he or she was a, a guest on a podcast or because what he or she said on a podcast? That's, there are some questions that I would like to see answered. Yes, I used to listen to, I've forgotten the name of it now, but the only Erlang podcast that existed back in the day with Brian Hunter and um, Zach. But uh, I would I would always get value from it, from things like Bruce saying, hey, you should really focus on the transformations. And, you know, it's a very pithy statement in exactly the right meaning of the word. Like learn, hearing someone smart say that and go, huh, I wonder how I actually put that into practice. And then figuring it out, you know, a month later. That's kind of the value I always got from programming podcasts. I believe the name of the podcast was Mostly Erlang. It was Mostly Erlang, yeah. I listened to that while I was painting a house. <laughs> I definitely agree with you. And also that sometimes you're listening to podcasts and you don't you don't really know what to expect. You don't know what you're going to learn. And that's what I appreciate about it because I think, you know, you pick up a book for a reason, right? I want to learn how to do X and Elixir. You know, you probably read a blog post for a reason as well. You were literally Googling how to do this thing. And like a blog post came up and you read it. But with podcasts, it's just kind of like an open space to start encountering things that you didn't expect, hear people talk about topics that weren't necessarily on your mind. It's kind of like why I like, I don't know how you guys are going to feel about this comparison. But what I like about cable television is that I only watch Law & Order on TV. They pick out the Law & Order episode for you all day long from like 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Like you didn't choose the Law & Order episode. You're just watching whatever they put in front of your face. And that's fun. You know, that kind of is, that's what I'm looking for when I'm listening to podcasts. Like I'm interested in a broad topic. You know, I'm interested in who these people are and I just want to hear what they have to say and I don't know where it's going to take me. So you're not looking for more murder in your podcasts. You're just, I, I think I get it. I get well, it. I'm also listening. That'll be one of my picks actually. Pretty good true crime podcast that I was introduced to recently. So what you're saying is we'll get back to the murder part. Yeah, uh, we'll talk about murder later. Yeah, I'm very curious to hear what comes out of that survey at all, though, because I do feel that the different podcasts that are available for the Elixir community, and we have a disproportionate amount compared to our community size. I think <laughs> so. We have a lot of them, and I find I find all of them interesting, and I feel like they we actually do manage to cover different focus points and have wildly different styles. The outlaws are definitely a style unto their own. And I feel like there's a lot of difference between the wizards and us, even though we are both to some extent guest driven. And yeah, the the whole meta conversation of what, what podcasts are good for and yeah, very interesting. Um, I hope to see your survey uh, soon. 
Are you freelancing or moonlighting? Or maybe you've thought about going out on your own. Every week, we have a group of developers at various stages of the freelancing journey on The Freelancer Show to talk about becoming better at freelancing. We also bring in experts to talk about marketing, SEO, and delivering high quality to clients. So if you're interested in going freelance or you are freelance, check it out at freelancershow.com. Well, speaking of picks, this might be as good a time as any to uh, wrap up our conversation and move into picks. So we'll just kind of round robin. And if anybody has any links or recommendations to share, this is the time for it. Start with Lars. What do you have for us? Well, I have the newly launched Beam Bloggers web ring and I'll call out Sophie and well, Alex isn't here, so I can't call him out that you're supposed to PR me your blogs so they can be in the web ring but yeah this is a fun little project that i wanted to put together to just spread the love traffic is rotating around the beam bloggers there's more design to come maybe it will even be pretty by the time this episode launches so yeah check it out it's beambloggers.com or you can look around for my github but beambloggers.com very cool i'm very excited to pr that it included my blog there it'll inspire me to write more thank you for that how about you, Bruce? Yeah, I've got a couple. Of course, the, the Groxio course is going on now, the LiveView course. And that's been a lot of fun. One of the things that I get to do is, is look at techniques that are kind of off the beaten path. And one of the things I really like is schemaless chain sets. So I've kind of been playing with where those live, right? It's an ecto thing, but it's something that likes to live in the view. So I'm working on a video this afternoon that'll go out with the fourth chapter that that'll come out um, probably about the same time as this episode. So I'll post that. I'm also excited to be working on a, a new project, but just to give you a teaser, here's a keynote. It was a keynote on failure by a guy named Brian Trotwine. And he's really just a, a fabulous speaker and um, an excellent person to, you know, that, that kind of is is the anti-Bruce, right? So I'm I'm optimist, happy path, and Brian is how many ways can things fail? And so we're kind of kicking around the idea of putting together a video series of how things fail, why they fail. Less of a programmer series and and more of a kind of an exploration of failure. So, but this is a teaser for that project. Oh, there's a lot of good stuff there. I'm looking forward to checking some of that out. Let's see who's up next. Steven, any picks for us? Yeah, I, I guess a, a general pick. I'll give what I'm using, but find something that does this. Uh, I found an e like a PDF reader that does text-to-speech. I don't know why where this has been my entire life, but like I now walk the dog and I'm listening. I got Bruce in my ear. Well, I have a robot in my ear saying Bruce's words. I've got you know everything that I've been meaning to read and then kind of get around to just constantly going in my ears now. Uh, I have Android, so I'm using e-reader Prestigio. They have a couple of different services for reading. But if, when they ask you to select, if you scroll down, you can pick the local Android one, so you can get the generic Android voice doing text-to-speech, which is good enough. But if you haven't done this, do this. You need this in your life. Being able to just throw a technical book, uh, reading growing object-oriented software guided by tests in one ear, it's, it's really, really cool. Do that. Good call. Yeah, that's a good idea. Josh, any picks? I have two picks. The first is the GitHub Arctic Code Vault's tech tree, uh, which I've linked to. And it's just, uh, you mentioned curation in the context of cable television. While I basically hate cable television, um, I do like the concept of curation. And this is, uh, they've listed just a ridiculous number of books that, hey, if you want to know about how to do stuff on computers, 
uh, whether it be networking or software development or whatever, here's a list of just really solid book choices. And then also I saw a quote, I don't know who to attribute it to, my friend Michael Alvis sent it to me, but it wasn't his, said, uh, running a successful open source project is just goodwill hunting in reverse, where you start out as a respected genius and end up being a janitor who gets into fights. And I just wanted to share that. That definitely resonates. Yeah, interesting. All right, I'll run down some of mine and then we'll hand it off to our guests. Uh, I've got a few this time around. So we talked a little bit about being a generalist and how as engineers, as programmers, it, it you know, is that's the way to go. I think a lot of us feel. So there's a great book by David Epstein called, let's see, Range, How Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. Really interesting book on this topic, sort of more broadly speaking. And uh, I was actually introduced to this book by my partner who is an artist and who wrote what I thought was a very interesting post on the topic of being a generalist from the point of view of like an artist or a creative worker. So I'm going to share that link as well. Not quite shameless self-promotion, shameless someone else promotion. And then uh, we've got a recent blog post from someone you may have heard of, Stephen Nunez, on the topic of managing Rabbit MQ connections with a library called X Rabbit Tool. And I just thought it was a really like very clear, very straightforward look at you know why we need to manage connections in this way, what this tool does for us. And what I really liked about it is there were all the pictures of, I forget what it's called, like, you know, the Erlang GUI, and it shows you the processes. What's that called, Stephen? Observer. Erlang Observer. Yeah. Showing oh, yeah. you like the various uh, processes that are being managed by your connection pool. And it's really fun to see like, okay, well, if I do this, and then we go back to the Erlang Observer and we see the tree kind of grow and shrink depending on what you're doing. And um, I just thought you laid it out super well. And of course, you hit upon this library and its tooling as part of the work we're doing to prepare for our very exciting, thrilling even conference at this year's ElixirConf on the topic of working with Elixir and RabbitMQ and using it to bring in a Greenfield Elixir app into your uh, legacy technical ecosystem. So if you haven't signed up yet, you, know, you might want to get on that. And that's it for me. Let's see if Adolfo has any picks for us. Yes, I, I have maybe too much too many picks, but uh, I, I have already sent you the, the links. The, the Elixir World Telegram Group, which is a Telegram group for any people related to any Bing language. What I like about Telegram groups is that I don't have the, the fear of missing out because when you go to, when there is a Telegram group which is reasonably large, then you go there and there is 200 new messages and you can't keep up. You, you forget that <laughs> you, you, you'll not be able to keep up with all the messages. So whenever you have time, you go there, you, you see what's happening and then you, you go back to what you're doing. I have already sent out other links related to Telegram, but it's okay. I think it's important to say that we have the education working group of the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation. We have a list of issues at our GitHub page. So I think it's important if people want to help the, our group. There, is, there are many issues, issues open. And Elixir Brazil 2020, Elixir Brazil 2020, is, is it going to happen? It, it would happen in May and Bruce would, would be here in Sao Paulo, but it seems it's going to happen physically, we hope, only in 2021, but it's probably going to happen online. So that's what, what I, I would like to say. If people want to learn Elixir in Portuguese, the 
the language of the creator of Elixir, you, it will be possible to learn it online. And my last pick is going to be a movie because I really like the, I really enjoyed the Elixir Fountain podcast. The, the last part, it was, I think it was fire behind the code because I could get to know better the people that were part of the community. And there, for instance, I learned that Joe Armstrong loved to, to play the piano. I can't play the piano, but I love movies and I love some Brazilian movies. The last time I was a guest here, I suggested people watch the, the movie Aquarius. Now I have another suggestion from the same director. It's Bacurau. It's Okay, some people will not like this movie because it's kind of violent, but it has a, a very deep message about Brazil today and about actually about the world today. So it's it's a, a movie that I really like. It's called Bacurau. This actually looks really cool. I just Googled it. This is my kind of movie. The locals are not exactly what they appear to be and hide dangerous secrets. Yes, sign me up. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today, Adolfo. This was a great conversation. And that's it for today's episode of Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.